Welcome back to another episode of Say Who Say Pod. He's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel. Welcome to those of you who accessed this episode via Threads. It's probably the first <laughs> one I'm promoting on there. Are you on Threads? I am. It's kind of a mess. I, t- I take it you're not. I am. I am. It's kind of a mess. It's it's a terrible feed. I mean, it is, it is, <laughs> it's an awful feed. It is like... <laughs> objectively horrible. It's It's funny because there's so much optimism about it. Because I just it, it exists. It's being operated by one of the the primary social media behemoths, and I think there's just this assumption that like they'll get they'll get all the the stuff ironed out. But I I do not look at it. Like I'll I'll post some stuff from time to time, but I'm I'm the feed is not to a point where I even want to lay eyes on it right now. Now I am trying to and and planning to sort of retrofit my my Instagram ap- approach. Um, in fact, somebody on Twitter uh, posted about me starting to leave thirst trap photos for uh, literary agents on, like, <laughs> which I'm not sure what would a thirst trap author photo be like. Would it be like mussed up hair and like staring up at the sky? Is it like banging on a typewriter? Um, so I've been following a lot of writers and literary agents on Instagram. So my my feed is somewhat like I've seen some things where I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And I don't know if I would have found that. And I've seen some other stuff like I've seen like three posts by Paris Hilton. I'm like, what? Like, there is no chance I want to see anything by her ever. Yeah, um, it's it's um, it's surfaced this this truth that I never would have thought about otherwise. So as I've spoken about before, I don't really use Instagram for its proper purpose. I just follow like meme and joke accounts and use it to send like funny stuff between me and my friends. I, I do not want to see those accounts in like a Twitter <laughs> setting. <laughs> so I, I just followed all the same account, you know, cause you can in one click follow everybody on threads who you follow on Instagram. And I'm, First of all, there's way too much stuff you see from people you don't follow. Don't did not love the for you tab on Twitter. I should say do not love the for you tab on Twitter. I'm not leaving. I'm not off Twitter or anything, but um, don't want anything to do with any type of algorithmic content. I only want to see stuff from people I'm following. <laughs> Christian but, wants um, to be siloed. <laughs> yes, I, I want to be in my own bubble. Give me my bubble. It is a bubble of my creation. Uh. But but even the the Instagram accounts I follow, I'm like, oh oh no, I don't I don't want to follow I don't want to follow these anymore. This is like the you know seeing it in, for some reason seeing it in like a meme format on Instagram is different than like. There's a reason I don't follow those type of accounts on Twitter. I'm just not interested in seeing it in that format. Now, I tend to side with you, where you get a lot of money and a lot of like horsepower, like technical horsepower in in whatever the facebook company it's called meta now meta you assume that they're going to be able to do it right but then i think back do you remember when google plus was going to take over facebook like the googles were <laughs> we're going to have google plus and it was going to be the new th- and they and that's a Poor big google company plus. i i'm not sure when they finally euthanized it i i don't think i think it was like 2018 like i think google plus was around for seven or eight years. I don't know a soul that ever used it, ever. 
Um, I think the I'm most, the closest I got was I was invited to like Google Hangouts, and that was confusing. And I was like, this, this seems for the birds. Um, yeah. Um, I don't even so, remember so, Google Plus's functionality. Like, what was it even? What did, what do you do on there? It was, it was going to be like Facebook. It was going to be a way to integrate all of your, like, your social media contacts and share photos and that's its goal was to become a rival to facebook didn't work out that way not quite no so that's a long way of saying that there's no guarantee that threads isn't going to crash and burn that's true uh we might still be stuck with twitter if um (laughs) which is just kind of funny at this point (laughs) if it's the impetus though to get elon to reverse course on all of these decisions that have just destroyed the, the platform, um, then we can say that Threads was a net positive because all people want is for Twitter to work. Like that's that's all they're asking for. It's not like you know people aren't jumping ship just because of the new ownership. It's being because of the like immediate detrimental actions that the new ownership has taken to destroy the product. Can I can I tell you something that's kind of sick? Please do. I- I like Twitter now more that e- that Elon's ruining it. I feel like he's given us like a shared villain. <laughs> and the actual fact of how screwed up it is enhances my user experience. <laughs> like what? there there are some things about it that I find uproariously funny. <laughs> like the fact that the blue check mark has become a signal for someone who I don't pay attention to is is so comically funny. Like it's just it's it's a beautiful plot twist. It really is. The the idea of making literally verification purchase only and allowing anybody to buy it is it's like it's objectively comical. And then when those when the when the now paid blue check marks who are kind of Elon Lemmings when they get mad at Elon, <laughs> it's just where I'm like, it's like the villagers are are now going to depose their hero. <laughs> yeah, so I'm a I'm a I'm a sick sucker because I'm enjoying that part of it. What a what a what a great world though. We we get to yeah. choose between two billionaires <laughs> who might have a cage match <laughs> and a lot of people are saying they're serious about it who would you t- who would you take oh geez zuckerberg's, i think i'm going zuckerberg zuckerberg's younger right zuckerberg's younger he's smaller so he's going to be at a weight disadvantage doesn't he which is do like jujitsu or something He's done some, but I think Elon's trained too because I think Elon's got some vanity going on. Like I, I, I think that there were some pictures posted of him where he was looking fleshy on a yacht. So I think he's been he's been bucking up. Here's my reason. <laughs> so Zuckerberg willingly chose the dorkiest haircut possible. Like he chose like a Star Trek haircut, which gives me a belief that he's got a certain level of conviction in himself. That Elon lacks because Elon has hair plugs. And I'm not saying anything against hair plugs. Other than it shows that Elon is very conscious of how he looks, even though he's that freaking rich. Like, if that, if I was that rich, I probably wouldn't care that much about what people thought about my appearance. But he clearly does. So I think he's got a lack of security. So therefore, I make Zuckerberg a three-to-one favorite based on just self-confidence. 
See, but I think most people would have taken Dwight in the Dwight Dwight versus Michael Scott matchup <laughs> in the office, and yet Michael Scott somehow prevailed. That to me, I think one of the, one of my favorite things about the office is that it's they write to the characters so well, and like all of the developments in the show make sense. So that the ones that kind of don't end up sticking out, that one didn't make sense to me. I'm like Dwight would have pummeled him <laughs> like, like by all like he's. He's bigger, he's longer, he's been training, he's he's got like the underdog, you know, underling going against the supervisor juice. He should he should have dominated him. Anyway. I forget. Do you have older or younger siblings? I have an older sister. So there is a such thing as like older brother like power. That's true. And, yeah. and and usually it relates to the older brother being willing to fight dirty. And like the younger brother is he's just not willing to cross that line of to do something underhanded that would cause the older brother pain unless the older brother has been an unrelenting bully throughout his life, in which case all bets are off. But I have a younger brother and and I, I think if we ever fought it would probably come down to my willingness to do something cheap that would tilt the scales. Like he would be the betting favorite and everything. That's the one chance I'd give Elon. Elon's got that older brother streak of like the fair fight isn't going to be as important to him as winning, like winning, winning would win, winning would take it at the end. And I, that's the reason that the, it made sense to me that Dwight lost because because that's how that personal dynamic would have played out. Dwight wouldn't have been quite capable of the of the intense. I don't know if my analysis holds up, but that's what that's what I'm going with off the top of my head. Yeah, that's that's fair. You have a, there's when when you're like the little brother, it's you've got even if it's subconscious, you've got that uh, that thought that like you're not supposed to win. You know? Yeah. Because you talk to our you, cougar friends. You never have. I knew that's where you were going to go with that. <laughs> so, so it took rude. a long time to get there. Would you uh, have been disappointed had I not gone there, or would you have been relieved? Um, I, I don't think I'd have been relieved. I, you know, wouldn't have, wouldn't have ruined my day or anything. But uh, I, if I, just, I had just I, steered clear of that cheap shot. <laughs> but see, that's an older brother mentality right there. That's the correct. Just one for the road, but I don't take it that seriously. Yeah, exactly. Um, should we talk? Should we actually talk some college football? Yeah, we're uh, we're single digit days away from media day now. All right, let's get it going. Pod. 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 Single-digit days away from media day mm-hmm. in Las Vegas, and still no media deal. And it does not seem as if one is coming before July 21st. Do you base that on Ken Zano's column earlier this week? That Yeah. Um, kind of seems like the people he talks to are have been trying to decelerate that timeline for a while now. Um. Like it's been a few weeks since there were the reports of well, like don't don't count on something by June thirtieth, and now it kind of feels like it's well, we're optimistic, but 
you know, no time pressure and all that. Don't count on something by media day. I'm just fascinated. That's the next question. If there is no deal, how is George Klyovkov going to message it? Are, are they going to seek some kind of, of formal agreement, some sort of, uh, vague at least outline of terms or something that they can say like hey this is happening um will he will he smugly allude to events coming in the near future that i can't talk about right now but that i think our 10 campuses and fans of our our 10 schools will be quite pleased with type of thing um there's only so much of a of a strong front he can present with no deal in hand. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. It's going to be. I think I saw either Kanzano or Wilner said that um, Stanford's AD is going to be up there with, or maybe Utah's AD Mark Harlan is going to be going to be up there taking questions with him. So I, if there's no deal, Kliavkov shouldn't talk. Like that's my expert messaging opinion. If you there's really no deal, that, wouldn't that be worse? I don't think so. Because it gives people less. They're going to write the same thing regardless of whether he's up there or not. Like the same things are going to be written. You're just not going to have anything to react smugly to, and say and mock if he doesn't say anything. I don't know what he can possibly say if there's no media deal that would help the conference in any way. Cause nobody's, nobody's going to take it seriously. Right. Like if yeah. he says, Hey, we're going to have to, I mean, and, and I, I say that honestly, I actually think there is going to be an announcement of a deal. And I base that entirely on if you were the PAC 12 and you're trying to get the most bang for your buck out of the announcement, you would try to delay or downplay the likelihood it will happen so it comes as more of a surprise. That's what I think. But look, I am fully around the bend. I am now telling you that I think that the commissioner should not talk at the conference's media day, which would (laughs) never in a million years happen. Like, there's no way what I'm proposing wouldn't be done. But I believe with every ounce of my being, that would be the best approach. If there's no deal, he shouldn't talk. Yeah, I I mean, that's silence has kind of been their default. It's been, but, but it it's been so long. They, they sent out like, but it hasn't because they 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 sent mm. out the announcement saying they were firmly like whatever the we're confident of the next meet like next agreement. When was that? Was that in the spring? February. The are you talking about the consummation? Yes. <laughs> yes. You know you you now have me googling Pac-12 consummation to get, <laughs> to get the precise date. It was February thirteenth. That was the dumbest PR tactic I've ever seen. Like that I, was really that was really stupid. That's a question that needs to be and I might write about this a little bit today. But that's a question that needs to be asked like what was the purpose of the statement of unity in February and did something did something change <laughs> since then? Like, is this the timeline that you expected to be operating on when you put that out because it was uh it's 5 months ago. 5 months because, ago today, in fact. You you were making the point when I cut you off that they have largely been silent. And that's generally true. Like most people, like Jen Cohen went months without talking to anybody, right? Up until the interview y- you did was a week and a half ago now. Mm-hmm. That, so 
I don't want to say like, hey, everybody's just been talking nonstop. But I do think in these situations, you either talk or you don't talk. And they've talked enough that you can't say they don't talk. And they would be better off not talking. Like, there's just no doubt in my mind about that. Uh, Klyovkov did take your advice at the uh, conference basketball tournament. Yes. Not say anything, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Does it feel like the... And whether it's actually coming from the Big 12 or not, we shouldn't shouldn't say, but... Don't you feel like the the sort of anti Pac twelve rhetoric or the the Pac twelve is going to disintegrate and multiple teams are going to the Big Twelve talk seems to it feels like it's died down a little bit. It feels like those efforts have kind of been put on pause, if not on ice, because for a while there, it was just sort of nonstop about Colorado's meeting with them and mm-hmm. Colorado and Arizona might go and it's it's on the brink and. And it just feels like there hasn't been a lot of that in recent weeks. And maybe I'm reading into something that's not there, but it feels like it sort of aligns with this messaging coming out of the the Pac-12 camp that they feel good about things. They don't feel rushed. They're optimistic that a deal is going to happen. I like this. I like I, I, I like sort of the triangulation that you're doing, which is we've sensed more confidence from the Pac-12 whisperers. Right. And and I say that like with no derision or the people who reliably report upon the Pac-12 and that's certainly on Montlake.com. But John Canzano and, and John Wilner have been have, have been two guys that really put a footprint in in talking about the future of the conference. The tone for both over the past month has been increasing confidence from from within the conference. And it has coincided with less uh, hungry eyes from the Big 12 and the people that are celebrating the Pac-12's downfall, which you could say, like, okay, that means the Big 12 whisperers, the people who were similarly positioned in that conference, aren't hearing the same sort of, well, we got a shot here, that maybe that window has passed. And that the, the tone and sort of the subtext and reading between the lines would be that the Pac-12 is on more stable footing right now than it was a month or two ago. Yeah, and it could be just that it's it's finally reached the point where, look, we, we all know what the possibilities are, and until final numbers are put in front of the presidents, there's just there are no decisions to be made. That nobody is going, you know, I think it's been established, nobody's going to proactively leave the Pac-12. Like no 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 president is gonna say, Okay, and enough with these negotiations. You haven't you haven't brought us anything. I don't wanna see the final number. I don't care to see the final number. We're 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 out of here. We're going to the big twelve. Like I think we're to the point where we can confidently say that's not happening. But until they see the numbers, you don't know that it won't happen, you know, that way, right? That maybe maybe there is a, a number that could be put in front of one or more of these presidents that's just like geez so we've got this we've got this invitation from the big 12 for this much more and the numbers is sorry it just you know we wanted to make it work we always wanted to stay in the pac 12 but this just doesn't work for us we got to go and until they have a deal that possibility is on the table but it does it just it feels like it feels like no one's leaving until until they see those numbers because they don't want to leave you know the dialogue that i imagine happening when someone decides that like they get to the point where if someone was going to leave um, and they're just like, we're out of this. We're tired of it. It's from the Dark Knight and the scene where the Joker 
played by Heath Ledger, which I think is one of the great all-time villains. Like, I love Heath Ledger's Joker. Comes into the meeting of all the crooks, and the guy stands up, and he's just like, enough with the clown! <laughs> that's the part that I always imagine, like, when the person is fully, if they were fully fed up, that that's, that's how they would handle it. Enough with the clown! Nobody's gotten to the enough with the clown point. <laughs> that is a great scene that's somebody and i didn't i didn't come up with this somebody tweeted that that's probably how the broncos receivers felt last year with some of the social media posts from their quarterback (laughs) (laughs) which he was back on instagram russell wilson and he did a workout video christian oh good and he was doing like one-legged squats and some like slide uh thrusts like a and he was holding a football in one hand (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was it was the then one of them was like it was it was like a he was extending out on like one of the slippery mats to to like strengthen his abs and usually use like a little hand slider to do that you know because i work out my abs so much yeah and he was oh, using a football as the sort of sliding, <laughs> the sliding tool <laughs> so i just i just realized I just realized we've, we're entirely negligent for not having this this sound ready to go because this is it's kind of become our thing. But the air, the clip of the lady on the airplane who got off saying that that there was a guy she was sitting next to who wasn't real. Yes. Um, I yes. saw. <laughs> so obviously that spawned a bunch of memes of. You know, here's what she, here's what she saw in the you know in the back of the plane. Yeah, and one of them was the uh, it was just a cutout of Russell Wilson from from him taping the hype videos last year <laughs> of, of him like waving his arms going Broncos country, let's rock. I saw at the Staples here on the Upper West Side. I saw lunch boxes and backpacks that said let's ride with russell wilson's logo on them <laughs> have you ever seen um eat the ball in in a store i think i have i think i saw it in safeway when it came out so i think i have but i'm not sure you know what I thought that product was when it first came out? What? I thought it was a like fighting global hunger initiative. And it was going to be that like this contains all the nutrients a young boy needs for a full day. And we're going to airdrop these into areas that are fighting like hunger to try and try and feed the world. Like I, I thought that that's that's what it was going to be. Imagine my surprise when I realized it was white bread shaped like a football. <laughs> it is just a hilarious product. Who and in the world is buying that? The selling point of this, <laughs> at a time where artisanal and organic and uh, small batch, the, the selling point of this product was that it had a shelf life of up to a year. <laughs> oh, yeah. In a store. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> and it was called Eat the Ball. <laughs> Broncos Country. Eat the Ball. Oh, man. Who do you think is... Uh, 
the Huskies' most important player for 2023? <sighs> Who's not Michael Penix Jr.? Who's not Michael Penix? ZTF? I think I had him number seven. Yeah. So you think you think he's more important than Braylon Trice? And I because I think there's an argument to be made. So I might start. I don't want to. I don't want to be quibbling about. Here's what why I would rank, and maybe it's most pivotal would be the best, the most important. Where if you took him off, off the field, who would hurt most? Yeah. Maybe ZTF is the wrong. Maybe ZTF would be the most pivotal because I see, I see ZTF as the player who, if he has an extraordinary season, him making the most difference. Where I could, I could see if if he looks like the pass rusher he was two years ago, where I'm like, oh my gosh, you pair him with Braylon Trice, and there's, I, I see there being more variance, like more fluctuation. The ceiling and the floor for ZTF this year is much. There's 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 a wider gap there than there is for Braylon Trice where I I think I think I know, I think I know who Braylon Braylon Trice is and then the the two receivers who are clearly among the most important players I'm like if one of those guys went out the other guy's so good that he helps make up for that you've also got Jalen Polk and 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 Jeremy Bernard like there's there's depth there did I say is it Jeremy or is it Jeremy. So I, I've asked this. I'm waiting for the official pronunciation guide to come out. I, I think it's it's Jeremy. Jeremy. Okay. So not not a not a full on Jeremy, but like okay. Jeremy. Jeremy. Okay. I, but I I gotta I gotta double check on that because I do want to get that right. So when you ask the the list of it there, you also you have Braylon Trice one and then. Tuli, that Tuli Asanoa, number two, which makes a lot of sense. Where I'm like Braylon is is such a pivotal and and linchpin, and Tuli is clearly like a, an essential. Like he's going to have to play a lot of snaps. Like he's that's a position where they haven't. They, I don't think they have the depth that they've had a couple years ago at that at that spot. But there's there's just this feeling I have where I'm like ZTF is the difference. Where if you're talking about getting into the college football playoff I would say if Washington's going to get there ZTF has to have an all pack 12 first team type of year and if they and if he does I, I could see them I, I I could see that changing the trajectory of the season yeah I mean it's because obviously it's 100% because of ZTF's presence but I, I don't feel like there's ever been a more like overlooked first team all-conference departure than Jeremiah Martin yeah, he's he's first team All Conference edge rusher. Yeah, and so was Braylon mm-hmm. Trice. They had very similar numbers, and and you know it, obviously it's it's because they have ZTF and you plug him right in. But yeah, that's kind of the the thing at edge rusher. You knew last year that they had they really they they had a great trio that they really liked, and you knew that Trice was going to be a starter, and then it was it was kind of or I, maybe maybe Martin was always going to start, and it was came down to were they going to go with Trice or ZTF? But um, this year you don't really have that number three. I think they were mm-hmm. kind of hoping like Savelle Smalls could be, but he leaves during the spring. They brought in Zach Durfee, and this is why I had Zach Durfee on my list of the 22 most important guys. I think I had him number 21. 
at the end of the year, he, you know, maybe way further back than that. Maybe he may be higher up. Who knows? But they have to find a third and a fourth and a, and a fifth. I mean, they like to go five deep. And you know, the fifth guy's not going to play as much as the third guy, but they need to find a couple edge rushers behind mm-hmm. those guys to play. I mean, they're just, they have to. So it's, it's going to be either Zach Durfee, Maurice Himes, Sakai, Asoa, Foa, Lance Holtz, Glaw, maybe Milton Hopkins, a walk on. Maybe they move Void Tunufi out there, but like they got to find a couple. And I think, I think Zach Durfee is, uh, I think he's got a really high ceiling. He looks like a really good athlete. Um, they might have stumbled upon something there, but he's also, you know, still young, you know, still still a little bit raw. We'll see how many snaps they can depend on him for. But I get what you're saying on ZTF. It's almost like the the known proven commodity, which at this point is Braylon Trice. Yeah. Maybe you, you kind of count on on him doing his thing, whereas with ZTF, he hasn't done it over a full season ever, mm-hmm. right? I mean, in 2020, mm-hmm. it would have been really interesting to see how many sacks he could have piled up in a full year, but it's the pandemic season, then he tears yep. his Achilles, and then he comes off the bench last year. So um, I did a I did a column for Seattle Sports 710 a few weeks back looking at, like, if they're going to have a defensive turnaround, there's five guys who I see is like, really key to that, who either they didn't have fully available last year or – were backups last year and now they're starters or I think there's one starter on that list and if he really takes the next step it changes things and I had ZTF on that list Edifu on Yulafosio is another mm-hmm. one never played a full season not as a, not as a starter um, Alumu Ale is one just because of we've talked about the body type and you know if, if I had to take like a, a dark horse guy from this senior class or or draft eligible class who could you know, really put himself on the NFL radar the, with just with a good year this year. I think he's one. Had Asa Turner on that list. I think they already were pretty happy with him last year, but he was hurt. And you know, let's let's see if he can step up and be a big time safety. Um, and I had Elijah Jackson, yeah, on that list. Um, for all the for all the fanfare around, you know, Jabbar Muhammad coming in as a transfer, and again, a little bit more of a known commodity, not at Washington, but he's played a ton of college football. You have some idea of what to expect from him. But Elijah Jackson's the guy who's got all the athletic measurables. He's got the size you like. He's got the long arms you like at cornerback. Can he stay healthy? If he does, it looks like he's got the inside track to that other starting position. And, you know, if he can be a guy for them, that that really changes things. Because now you've got a veteran corner who, you know, in theory, will be pretty reliable, and you kind of know what you're getting. Plus, another corner who's hey, I look out of nowhere. Elijah Jackson's just a really good player. So, those were those are the kind of the guys. And so, I think all, all five of those you have to say are pretty important players or pivotal might be the better word, like you said, like where you know we Romo Dunze and Jalen McMillan obviously are extremely important, right? Um, and it's I think the reaction. Like, if you found out, like, oh, like, Romo Dunze's got some ankle injury that's going to keep him out three weeks. Like, that would get a ton of headlines. And, oh, my God, like, Romo Dunze's not going to play. But practically speaking, you've still got Jalen McMillan. You've still got Jalen Polk. Mm-hmm. You've still got Giles Jackson. You've still got Jeremy Bernard. You've still got Denzel Boston. You're not going to be as good without Romo Dunze because he's really good. It, it, it lowers your ceiling a little bit as a group, but they would kind of be fine. Whereas, you know, I think if, if Trice or ZTF were out, there would be some panic. People would, would obviously understand, like, that's a bad thing. But I don't know that it would get as much attention 
and I, I think it would have a more detrimental impact on the team. So that's kind of why I, I skew toward, and you mentioned Thule, and Thule's in the same category, right? Yes. D-tackle and edge rusher where there's there's not as much established depth. There's not as much established playmaking ability. So if either one of those two guys goes down, um, it could it could be a really big deal that doesn't get talked about as much as it probably should be. Value is not just how good a player is. And, and strictly speaking, especially in football, value is determined by the gap in performance between that player and the guy who replaces him. Mm-hmm. Right, Like your, your most valuable player is the one for whom there is the greatest drop-off were he to not be available or not be there. And it's, it's a different way of measuring things. It's a very important way of looking at it. A guy that's really high on that list, and you have him fifth, is it is is the left tackle and the importance of being able to rely upon him and having Troy Fontenot back I think I probably underrated how significant that was or maybe I'm basing this you linked to the tweet from Jim Nagy who I, I know when he w- used to work with the Seahawks he used to work in the Seahawks scouting department he's now in charge of the senior bowl and he singled out Troy it was a few weeks ago basically saying this guy is going to have his name called extremely high in next year's draft and I didn't I didn't really have if you had asked me my opinion on on his draft stock last year I would have said he's going to be a third day pick and I, I think that's low and it's certainly low based on, on on what Jim said, and and so like value that that gap between him and the, him and the next person. The other thing, when you were talking about the secondary and Elijah Jackson and and the impact of the transfer at, at, from Oklahoma State, like all of that, all of those different things that are at play in the secondary. Secondary is a really interesting position in football because it is what people have started to call a weak link position in which the strength of your unit is in some ways defined by the weakest link there in a way that's a little bit different than other spots where if you have one great corner and one terrible corner, your opponent can kind of plan against that by just staying away from the good corner. And there's this is coming from some of the NFL analytics community, but they're like, in the secondary, you should try and come up with a scheme in which it accommod- every guy's job is equally hard. So if you have a great player, you want to make his job harder than your lesser players. And the idea is to sort of distribute the workload. So your very best players, you're asking them to do a ton to compensate for the... And in looking at a secondary in that way, I think that you're right to position Elijah Jackson as someone who is incredibly important because it's not just how big a boost the incoming transfer, the proven commodity is going to provide. It's how much better the overall secondary gets. And that's going to require emergence of other players. And Elijah Jackson is, is one of them that is, that is really, really high. And, and Asa Turner as well. Like Asa Turner is going to be asked to do a lot this year. And if if there if that defense is going to take a huge step forward, I think that he needs to be someone who is one of the best, one of the leaders on this defense going forward. With corner, it's interesting too, though, because if if Thaddeus Dixon keeps progressing, like he had a great spring, the JUCO transfer. If he keeps progressing and is either challenging Elijah Jackson for snaps or maybe beats him out, 
well, now how you know how important is Elijah Jackson? Like, I don't know that it's totally established that he's the guy, but it was that way throughout the spring, and I think it's so it's fair to assume it'll be that way starting out in fall camp. And I think they just like they really liked him early on last year. And he was banged up in spring last year. He played he played the most of his career in the in the ASU game, forty uh, some snaps, and wasn't targeted. I don't think he even had a pass thrown his way. And would have played a lot last year because of the injuries to Jordan Perryman and Mishael Powell, uh, but was but was banged up. So I think they've liked him and have wanted to give him the opportunity. And as long as he's healthy, he's going to get a crack at it. And he's you know he had an interception in the spring game. He's performed well. So um, corners a little like linebacker, where there's two spots for three guys who look mm-hmm. like they deserve time. Um, I'm not saying it's just three guys, but there's a you know I think. A linebacker, Tupatala, Ulafoshio, and, and Raylan Goforth is a pretty clear top three, and only two of those guys are going to start. And at corner, you know, Muhammad, Jackson, and Thaddeus Dixon, I think, were the, were the top three coming out of spring, and only two of those guys are going to start. So corner's not a position you, you platoon. Um, you know, in the past, when they've had stud corners, stud safeties, those guys don't come off the field uh, until... Yeah really late you know the the game's been decided or whatever it's not like linebacker it's not like like d tackle and edge so it'll be interesting to see if they do really if they really like jabbar muhammad and elijah jackson and thaddeus dixon do they find ways to get whoever's number three on the field or do they just hey sorry you know roll roll with the top two because the the top two are playing well and that's just not a position where you rotate a ton that i'm I'm interested to kind of track that throughout the season yeah and it's a little different with the way it'll be interesting to see how Husky works out too, right? That's Michelle Powell is kind of the guy that looks slated for that. That would be, in my opinion, would give them someone with more of a coverage. Like he's more like a, a traditional nickel corner than using a safety there last year, which, which is, which is kind of the template that they used. But look, <laughs> their issues in coverage were well documented last year and they need it, the likelihood of your starting secondary remaining healthy throughout an entire season in college football is is pretty low mm-hmm. um just given given the the demands that are placed on those positions by modern passing attacks another guy on that list i had when so I, when i first sketch it out i'm basically just like Okay, let me let me pull all the, the, the there's like 15 names that have to be on there, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to pull all them and start start writing their their capsules, start writing my analysis. And I'll figure out the I'll figure out the actual ranking later on some of these guys also while I finalize who those last 3 4 5 6 7 guys are going to be. And I originally had Mateo Mele. I was thinking Mateo Mele was going to be like closer to like the 18 20 range. But then the mm-hmm. more I thought about it, I'm like, yeah, but if if that guy's not pretty good, mm-hmm. that a, a lot of bad stuff can flow from that if your starting centers doesn't have a good year, yeah. right? Or if he gets hurt, if he can't play. And I think they really like, you know, like Parker Brailsford um, was their number two center in spring. I think they really like him and think he's a really good, smart football player. Um, but you're talking about a sixth-year senior versus a redshirt freshman who's who's never played college football like that's a there's a big experience gap there at a really important position so um i i had him up higher but then i kept 
it was kind of like the the Mateo melee test. Like every guy I had in front of him, I'm like, well, no, he's more important than him. He's more important than the next guy. He's more important than the next guy. Yeah, it put him ahead. And we wound up having him at 13th. And mm-hmm. a commenter actually pointed out, like, hey, I would have had Mateo Mele higher than 13th, you know? So it's a, it's kind of one of the sneaky ones where you know, a lot of talk about guard and, you know, Julius Bulo I had on the list, too. Nate Kalepo easily could have been on there. I mean, you're talking about mm-hmm. um, two guys who were replacing a couple six-year seniors from a, a really good offensive line last year. I don't know if it's because Melee is a sixth-year senior. You kind of know his name. It feels like you sort of know his game, even though he hasn't played like a ton. But he has played a good bit as a as a backup and a rotational guy. Um, or if the the center pedigree under Scott Huff is such that you just kind of assume he'll be fine and he'll play well, and you know he'll just be another guy who kind of keeps things humming along, like it worked out last year with Corey Luciano. Luke Wattenberg wound up being an, uh, an NFL draft pick. Nick Harris wound up being an NFL draft pick. Coleman Shelton was an all-conference guy before that. So um, center just seems to have, uh, it seems to sort itself out year to year. And he always seems to be a, a veteran kind of running things. And maybe it just feel, feels like Mateo Mele. There's just kind of the assumption that, yeah, this guy will this guy will keep it going. But it's a, it's a very pivotal position for them, obviously. I'm reading a book called The Hidden Game, and it was, I think it's kind of one of the first statistical, like analytics-oriented books on football. And it starts out with a really good overview of the history of football formations, like going all the way back to Walter Camp. And one of the things that's most fascinating is it explains sort of the, the dynamics of weight specifically along the offensive line in that it used to be that you had the five defensive linemen lined up across from five offensive linemen. And then the ends, the guys outside the tackles who would be eligible to be receivers would be beyond there. But there was a defensive innovation where they took the, the middle guy who had been over top of the center and moved him back to middle linebacker. And once that happened, you saw an emphasis placed because the center no longer had a big huge and he wasn't as huge as they are now carnivore on the other side of him they got lighter so it's been a lighter position and in the nfl center has typically not been as well paid certainly not as tackles which have been the premium guard salaries have come up yet center remains one of the most pivotal positions on good offensive lines and the value of a good center is not necessarily reflected in the salaries that they command in the NFL, which I've always found weird. And I think some of that relates to that. It's knowledge of the system that makes a center valuable. So in, in the NFL where free agency is kind of what dictates like, Hey, going, getting this guy from this team. Well, if the asset of a center is his knowledge of the offense and the blocking schemes and that, He's not going to be as valuable to another team because his kind of advantage is that he's got this sort of knowledge of that team's playbook. But it doesn't undermine the importance of that player to that team. Centers are... I've never covered a good offensive line that didn't have a really good center that everybody respected. 
Like it's just, it's never happened. And I think one of the major issues that the Seahawks had in the years after 2014 was that they didn't have a center that everybody respected the way they did Max Unger. And so it's a long way of saying like that, A, the fact that Scott Huff has a history of getting guys who, and picking the right person for that spot, like that does speak to his ability to understand what's necessary at that position, what allows a guy to thrive. But it also underscores the importance of melee because that's a really important position that you have to have. And if he, he's not going to get drafted as as high as Fontenu, but he might be every bit and maybe more important because of how the dynamics of the season and the importance that a center has within a team. You're on the uh, you're on the same train as Ryan Grubb, and he flat out said in the spring, like. He's like, yeah, obviously it's a group effort. All five guys need to do their job. But he's like, pass protection always starts with the center. Always comes back to the center. A hundred percent. It's make, wild how much. He's got to make all the checks. Got to get everybody uh, on the same page and everything. And, and he's understand the and, and he's got to block. And he's got to understand his personnel too. It's a it's a fascinating thing. And that that question of how we determine and emphasize who is important and valuable and what they do because it is i mean look it's a hugely interdependent game and and you need every but yeah the importance of the center um is yeah i i i I think that that was the correct logical exercise to keep escalating his importance christian (laughs) uh mateo melee was worth a conversation but i think uh i think there's another topic that's probably worth a conversation today as well it's our friend ian mcfarland ipmcfarland.com he's been a huge supporter of our podcast also just a really good guy but seriously if you've got an idea or an interest in taking a product to market or looking for opportunities it's worth a conversation with ian whether you're at a point where you're looking to expand your sales force consider sales options it's worth talking to him ipmcfarland.com here's ian with this week's question Hey guys, uh, hope you've been well. Christian enjoyed the write-up on the top 22 non-quarterbacks this week. Uh, we're starting to get into get excited time of the year. Uh, the first two games for UW um, against Boise and Tulsa, respectively, UW will be pretty heavily favorited and then very heavily favorited in those games. But what can we glean from them? Uh, the Vegas total is 9.5 for the season. Are there indicators that we can look for in those first couple of games that if this is happening, that feels good and maybe over 9.5 is in play and the Pac-12 championship is in play? Or if these things are happening or not happening, um, 9.5 is going to be a stretch and, and it could be a much more frustrating season than we expect. Hope you guys are getting some rest before the season really cranks up. Uh, enjoy your summer. Talk soon. So it's a good question. I would say there absolutely are things that you can look for. And I, I refer back to last season. Um, they steamroll Kent State in the opener. It's mm-hmm. never close. They blow out Portland State. Obviously, FCS team, they've got them outclassed. It's never close. Yet, did we not come out of those two games talking about how even though the numbers wouldn't tell you it sure looked like there were some concerns in the secondary. Yep. Yep. There were some there were some big plays completed in, in the Kent State game where you kind of went, hmm, didn't see that a lot under Jimmy Lake. 
Didn't see that a lot under Chris Peterson. And there were some busts in the Portland State game where, you know, I think a guy was overthrown or like a guy had a drop on what should have been a big play, maybe even a touchdown if I'm remembering right. And so I think Portland State averaged like, I mean, I don't have it in front of me, but it was a, it was a paltry yards per play. I mean, the numbers were totally lopsided. No one would look at the box score and go, oh, wow, Washington has issues defensively. But if you watch the game, there were a couple of spots there where you're like, oh, like if that had been literally any other team on their schedule, that's a touchdown. Or that's a mm-hmm. that's a huge play. Or, gosh, that guy that guy wasn't in the right spot. Um, and then guys got hurt after that. So, yeah, I think you're you're looking for those those individ- You're looking for no coverage busts first of all. You know, no no plays where someone is running wide open behind your corners, where it looks like somebody missed an assignment, or someone thought that someone else had responsibility there, or someone just got straight run past and the guy's got two strides on him and he's, he's that open. You're looking for none of that against Boise state in particular. I'm, I'm really interested to see how they handle George Helani and Ashton Genty. Um, Washington's going to see some really good running backs this year. Mm-hmm. Damian Martinez, Jaquindon Jackson, Bucky Irving, Nakia Watson, um, Marshawn Lloyd, Rayleigh Brown. If he's, lines up at running back pointing they're gonna see some talented guys boise state's got maybe the best one two on the schedule i mean george halani was a thousand yard guy last year and he comes back as a senior and like dave southern was telling us last week ashton genty as a true freshman went for over 800 yards and like might be the more explosive player so they've got to they've got to contain those guys and then you know talking about the 2022 Washington Huskies it would be really weird to say like yeah shut down the run and force them to throw against you it probably wouldn't be what anybody wanted but I think that's that's the kind of team that they need to be at least in that opener against Boise don't let those two running backs bash it on you and and can they hem in an athletic quarterback who can really run too because that was an issue for them last year as well that's what I'm looking for in the opener at least um and yeah you're just you're kind of looking for those those trouble spots those those two or three plays here or there where you're like, hmm, that could that could be an issue against a, a more talented opponent. Can they force Boise State to third down? Like, I think that's, if you're going to look for a quick measurement of, of, of Husky defensive progress, it's going to be the number of third downs that they force in that, in that season opener. Because I do believe Boise State's going to try to run on them. And if Washington is going to have to be able to force them to do what they don't want to do, which is throw the ball. So I would say that the second game I think is really going to be, you want to look for pass pressure. Mm -hmm. Are they able to get pressure on, on Tulsa? Because that is a game where Tulsa is, is not going to take the same approach I think that Boise State does which hey we're going to we're going to lean into our strength here. Washington there are questions about their defensive line which has been a strong spot for them and you're going to want to see can they can they disrupt and overwhelm Tulsa should be overmatched in that game and I think you're going to a, a good sign would be if their if their quarterback is under fairly constant pressure and they're almost forced to run to get Washington to ease up on the pass pressure. And I would say, too, you know, obviously we know Boise State is not your typical G5 program, right? They've got some 
they probably recruited a little bit higher level. Um, they've got some talented guys, some NFL guys regularly. There's no question, but you still would like to see if if this Washington team is what everyone thinks they can be. You would like to see their offensive line impose its will in the running game, mm-hmm. and so I would be looking for that too. I mean, can they can they push these guys around? Can you know? Can they use the threat of the pass, which they don't need to establish? Everyone knows who Michael Penix Jr. and Romo Dunze and Jalen McMillan are, right? Like, they're they're going to come in, you know, thinking that the the game's going to be on the secondary and the pass rush, right? Can you get a pass rush on Michael Penix Jr. and can you cover all those talented receivers? Using that to open things up, I wonder can can they really impose their will and run the ball and smash mouth it when they want to and need to. Can they pick up those fourth and one, fourth and twos that you know they're going to go for? I think that everybody wants them to go for, but that they they weren't super successful at in short yardage situations last year. Can they can they smash it in from two yards out from the goal line and not have to go through a whole series of first and goal, second goal, third and goal, fourth and goal? Kind of like you saw a couple times last year, like in the Michigan State game. Um, and, you know, the obvious really the only big question mark offensively coming into the season. Can they protect Michael Penix Jr.? When they ha- when they, when they they choose to throw, when they have to throw, if they get in third and longs, um, you know, can they keep him upright and can they give him the, the same kind of time or at least similar kind of time to throw as they did last year? And that's, like, just because you accomplished that against Boise State and Tulsa, that's that's kind of the one thing where it's like, okay, well, we'll see. You know, that would good, you know, it's, it's good, it's, it's good that, that it didn't happen, but it doesn't mean it's not going to happen against better teams with more talented pass rushers. But um, if you do see it, I think that's maybe an indication that, like, whoa, you didn't see him get pressured at all against Oregon and you know some other. You know, again, they didn't play like a ton of great teams last year, so yeah. we'll we'll see. But um, if if you see if you see Michael Penix Jr. get pressured a lot, that would be on the kind of the reverse side of Ian's question. Like, wow, okay, that's that's uh, that's maybe not a great sign for for how the rest of the season is going to play out. It's so funny because I mean we overreact to everything early in the year. Over the course of a season, what separates good like good teams from okay teams and great teams from good teams is. What happens when an opponent takes away something you want to do? Can you, can you find workarounds for that? Or does it just become a slog? And then the second thing is when an opponent experiences success against you, are you, are you able to stop that? Like, are you able to then stymie that? And early in a season, especially in games where you quote unquote should win, <laughs> there's this sort of like, if it's anything less than a knockout, if it's if it's anything less than like this this they destroy him that there's a sign of a problem. It's like well not necessarily games games play out differently um, based on a number of different things. But w- what really what you really look for is okay if your team can't impose its will either by sort of blowing them off the ball, moving the ball at will, or or stopping them. How how do they respond to that? And that will be, can, can Washington stop Boise State from running? Like, that's going to be a pretty clear test. And if, if they can't, can, can they adjust and then start stopping them? Um, 
as opposed to well, if they don't win these two games each by double digits. That's I I don't I don't think that that's actually an accurate an accurate reflection. Like you said, if you would have looked at last year and the the actual results of those first two games, you would have said like Washington's Washington's defense looks pretty good. If you watch the games, you know, like, okay, no, like that's the the back door was open an awful lot, and it felt drafty. <laughs> also, like if we're if we're comparing straight up to last year's schedule, like Boise State is a lot better than Kent State, and Tulsa's yes. way better than Portland State. So it is from week one yes. to week two, each of them's a little bit more of a test. Um, I don't know that Tulsa's and- better than Kent State was last year when they played them, but. Um, Games they should win, little little bit higher degree of, of difficulty than last season from from you know comparing week one to week one and week two to week two, and then it's going to be really because Michigan State doesn't look like nearly as big a challenge as it looked last year, but Michigan State wasn't as good as everyone thought last year, and this game's at Michigan State. Like I I think that's in terms of degree of difficulty, that might end up being a much tougher game than last year's Michigan State game, even though we thought it was a showdown. And that's based entirely on reputation and expectation. Well, and just having to travel that far, right? They haven't yeah. done that under Kalen DeBoer yet. Um, I had to go to San Antonio for a bowl game. a little bit different. You're there all week. and There's no body clock factor, Danny. It's a 5, <laughs> it's a 5 p.m. Uh, Eastern time kickoff. Although per, perhaps the knowledge that They'll be streaming only on Peacock. Will uh, you know, s- slip into their their mentals, so to speak. <laughs> no one's watching this on linear television. Why should, <laughs> why should I even try? They can't recruit off of this. God, my parents aren't going to be able to change the channel back and forth easily. There might even be yeah. a delay. Do you have any thoughts on Pat Fitzgerald getting the axe in, in Northwestern? So, public relations really it, 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 it shouldn't be this hard, right? Like how you handle a pretty. I'd like to hear Michael Schill and Northwestern's athletic director answer some questions, rather than communicate just via statement. I will. I mean, I guess if you're trying to be extremely charitable, like you don't see a lot of university presidents actually admit, like, yeah. um... I screwed up. We shouldn't have just suspended him for two weeks. That was my bad. Um, we're gonna we're gonna look at it again because that was when you knew he was fired, right there. Yep. But yes. I the whole thing is just very strange. It kind of, I mean, I don't know. It, it feels a little bit like they thought that if if they didn't release the details of the investigation, that people just wouldn't find out, and so. You wouldn't have, you know, you wouldn't have those specific incidents for people to zero in on. Like, I just, again, I have questions. Like, did, did, if you if you overlaid the Daily Northwestern story with the actual investigation, is it that there were details in that story that the administration wasn't aware of? And that after reading it, they went, whoa, well, if we'd known that, we would have done more than just suspend him for two weeks. Or... Did they know all that? And it was just the the public knowledge element of it that led them to okay. Well, I guess now we gotta fire him. Like I, I got questions, and I don't want to jump to conclusions on my jump to conclusions, Matt. But like, I got I got some questions. Yeah the the story we're talking about Pat Fitzgerald. There were allegations of hazing 
um, and hazing that was sexual in nature. And the school came out and initially suspended Pat Fitzgerald for two weeks. And then the, I I mean, I, I think I'm correct in saying that the student newspaper is the one that has carried the bulk of the reporting on this and talking to multiple former players about what exactly the hazing was um and it it kind of related to guys players doing inappropriate sort of mimed sexual acts toward younger players resulting from errors that they made in the practice or in games. Um, as well as there was also a, an, another story about some sort of culturally insensitive things of Pat Fitzgerald establishing a Northwestern way in which different things like hair length and, and other, other issues. But that was kind of separate from the actual hazing stories. If you are going as an institution, if you are going to say, hey, this happened and it was wrong and it won't be happening anymore and here's the punishment, you need to be able to spell out what you're apologizing for. And and I think that this is a general, like when people screw up and they want to just apologize without specifying what they're apologizing for, you leave yourself open to these sort of things. Because Northwestern was basically saying there were problems here but they didn't spell out the exact nature of the problems. And that doesn't really answer the questions people have. And it's impossible to tell is the punishment appropriate or not, which it seems to me is kind of what's happened here. And I think this goes beyond college sports and just to general like institutions. And you've got to be able to say what happened. And if you can't say what happened, why not? And if, if if the answer about why not is because we don't want people to react to it, well, then you probably need to rethink the solution that you've come up with because sitting there and hoping people don't find out is a terrible approach. Um, I'm not as prone to as charitable a characterizations as, as you are, Christian. I'm more cynical. And I think that a lot of people make decisions and by a lot of people a lot of institutions make decisions where they essentially like well let's see how this goes and they're like oh people are really mad about this we're gonna have to walk that one back and i guess that's one way to make policy like that's one way to make is to see how people react to it and sort of like the nfl did with the ray rice suspension where they're like well this is our decision and then people found out what he got suspended for and they're like oh my god that is totally appropriate like well okay we're gonna have to rethink that one and we screwed it up but Governing by trial balloon is, in That's general, a bad, a bad approach. It's a bad approach. Um, I don't know much about Pat Fitzgerald other than there was a few years they played Stanford in a game where all the coaches were wearing shorts, and I thought they looked like dorks. Um, but, yeah, you can't, you, can't coach. You, can't, you can't coach a college football team, especially because Pat Fitzgerald was one of the anti-union guys. <laughs> it's like that that team tried to unionize he was like no we don't need them to over like well actually a union would be the kind of thing that would prevent the kind of abuses that are said to have occurred in your program sir so yeah you got to go that's a totally uh shift to a more trivial aspect of this but i've seen a couple people are nationally argue that well now this puts northwestern football in a really dire position 
kind of like Stanford, although Stanford's been recruiting really well recently, so we'll see, where, man, they're risking just totally falling off the map. They already were 1-11 last year. Pat Fitzgerald was kind of the, you know, the longtime loyalist who, you, you know, was, was going to stick with them, and you could trust that he was always going to build these great defenses, and every now and then they could rise up and compete for division division title, and gosh, you know, where do they go now? And I've seen people point out, well, they've poured a ton of money into their program. They've got this $800 million planned stadium renovation. They built a nice football facility. They've, they're in the Big Ten. They've got Big Ten money. This should be a really desirable job, not only for all those reasons, but because you've got all those resources at a school that doesn't expect to win a bunch of games every year. You won't get fired for going 5-7 and seven at Northwestern. So you might keep your job at one and eleven unless you have hazing. Yeah, yeah, you can you can even <laughs> only get a two week suspension for overseeing a program that apparently is rampant with hazing after a one eleven season until everybody gets mad about it. And then the president has to fire you instead. But I, I I don't know which one of those to to believe. Which is closer to the truth that this is actually like a sneaky desirable job, or that uh, you're you're kind of resigning yourself to uh, to being a they have not, at least in the in the win loss column, if you take that job. I think it's a terrible job, yeah, for coaches that that want to progress. And one of the things that nobody wants to talk about amid all the the conference expansion and the 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 big boy heavyweights that are the Big Ten and the SEC is that somebody's going to have to lose a lot of games. Like there are going to be teams that fall toward the bottom, and. That is historically Northwestern. Like that's, I mean, they were terrible up until I remember when they went to the Rose Bowl. I think Pat Fitzgerald was a was he a middle linebacker on that team that went to the Rose he Bowl was. with Gary Barnett. He was, and then Gary Barnett became this. He was staying and he would flirt with other jobs, and then finally he left for Colorado, and then that was a disaster. All of these different things that happened. Um, Northwestern has historically been at at the lower end of this conference. You're gonna. I don't think that's going to be fun. I don't think that's going to be a good place for a program. I don't think UCLA is going to benefit from its move to the Big Ten. They might get more money, but I think that they're going to end up in bad places in the conference. And at least with Northwestern, they'll still have their geographic rivalries. Like, Illinois is still going to hate them. Um, but, yeah, I, no, I think, I, think that's going to be, I think that's going to be a terrible place. They should hope that Stanford gets led into the Big Ten eventually because that would be like they can have their nerd bowl between those two schools every year. I keep waiting for someone to float Chris Peterson. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Cause Maybe it's already happened. I just haven't seen it. But it's like every, every smart kid school job that comes open. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris do Peterson. Peter, do you think Peterson quietly resents that? He's like, I... I could coach more than nerds, man. Like, did you look at our school? Like, like I've coached some dudes. Like, I, I don't just coach nerds. Uh, I feel like if that's your reputation, it's be it's because it, it's at least in part reflective of what your priorities are. And I think he would say, "Well, if my even if it's broad strokes, and I know that there's more to me than just I, I want I want kids who are dedicated in the classroom, like." If that's my broad strokes reputation, then that's better than that's better than most. You know, it's it's yeah. it, you'd rather have it that way than like, oh, who should the who should the renegade program hire? And and you're you're the name that always comes up like for for those type of jobs. I'm still waiting, and it'll probably never happen because the money wouldn't be right. 
Wouldn't it be funny if Nick Saban took that job? I didn't have one single four-star, and I just kicked Jim Harbaugh's butt. This isn't the same thing, but it did. It reminded me. It, so Jordy Ball was Oklahoma softball's best pitcher. Uh huh. Um, won national championships with them the last two years. And legitimately, like one of the best players in the country. Yeah, yeah. And just she's from Nebraska, so she just transferred. She home, transferred. Transferred yeah. home to go to Nebraska because she just wanted to wanted to play at home. She was homesick. Her home, her home region, hometown meant a lot to her, and. I wonder if if someday maybe it's not at Northwestern right now, but maybe we see the college football equivalent of that. Where and again, Jordy Ball was motivated, I think, more so by returning home than by okay, I, w- I won two national championships. Like whatever, what's a, what does a third mean? You know, we're just you know, we're going to be the favorite. Yippee! I want to go try it somewhere else. I don't think that was like what was driving her, but you could see how it it could be for a person, right? Like, yeah, will we will we ever see? like the legacy head coach who's won multiple national championships and just leaves his school to go coach like, yeah, some school that's not a contender and just be like, you know what? Let's just see. Maybe I, maybe I can build these guys up. Kind of like you said, maybe that's say, you know, Saban's going to respond to all the, like, has Saban lost it <laughs> talk by being like, Oh, you think I've lost it? All right. I'm going to take the Northwestern job. <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny? Oh God, it'd be hilarious. I would, I would root for Saban in that scenario. Like I would fully root for Saban in that scenario because I cannot imagine how smug he would be if he beat an SEC team in a bowl game with Northwestern. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's uh, what's up on the dang apostrophe this week? Uh I've written a little bit about the Mariners uh, and why Mets fans. It cracks me up when Mets fans whine. <laughs> say, say that like we've there was a column in the New York Times about like being a Mets fan. It means accepting losing. And I was like, brother, you have no idea. Uh, and then I'm going to write something about Pete Carroll and his his approach. I've been reading Seth Wickersham's book. It's better to be feared, which is about the Patriots brady belichick dynasty and the ways in which pete is essentially the motivational antithesis of of belichick like i i really think that they see and approach the game from fundamentally different approaches um which is fascinating to me do you think pete's read that book uh i don't know no, I don't think he has. I think he's read things by Belichick. Um, I'll bet he's read the Halberstam's book on him. I'm not sure about this one. I, I think Pete's pretty well sorted out on the motivational strategies that other coaches use, and he's pretty hip deep in his own stuff. Like he's much more likely to read Brene Brown or or work with some of the the psychological sort of thought leaders today he's much more likely to to listen to ted talks yeah. than he is to read read sort of in-person accounts of of football coaches do you think he rereads win forever i don't know there's a That's funny a really, story really about good win book forever. man yeah so so pete like that book's pretty successful in sports book like, releases like it did pretty well like it made it to a paperback um, but I think Pete was really underwhelmed by the reception to it, which is probably telling for 
how the the role of of published authors sort of ranks up the rewards that are that are they're accorded that because it used to be guys athletes uh would write books because it was a way to get paid when they weren't making as much money now i think that if you write a book and you're an athlete you're doing it as largely because you want to have a book um as opposed to any sort of financial reward but Pete's book is really interesting. Like it explains an awful lot about him. It's certainly his own one-sided sort of view of his own history. Um, but it's a it's a fascinating look at how he sees the world. Yeah, I think I have a copy. Do you think Chris Peterson would? Do you think Chris Peterson would want to write a book? I've thought about that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, he seems like the type who who might. Um, I don't know if he would write it himself. Yeah, but. Uh, I think he is so into the the leadership book genre, yeah. That I could see, I could see him kind of feeling like, well, you know, I've got I've got something to share here. I've got something useful that that I could get in, and maybe just wanting to have like a a a documented record out in the world of how he does things. But then now that I say that, I could see him not wanting that, you know, public anywhere. Like it's my it's my secret sauce. It's my process. You know. I don't. Oh, really? I don't want to. But I don't know. It's a good question. He he definitely what? falls in the sort of scholarly realm of of coaches who I would not be surprised to see published someday. Yeah, I talked to. It was a year ago. Um, There's a guy named Ranjay Galati, G U L A T I. He works at Harvard's Business School, um, and he he studied Pete. Like he went there, and like this was this sort of been like 2010, 2011. Um, and includes a chapter on Pete and the book is called deep purpose. Um, and so Pete gives access and he's interested in those sort of guys and he works with Michael Gervais, who's also someone that's sort of involved in that, in that space. It's the money. Like if people are interested in getting paid for their thoughts on leadership, it's much better to be a consultant or to be brought in and to be a corporate speaker, essentially, or even work with companies. Um, but like books on leadership are fascinating. Um, I'd be really interested to read sort of Chris Peterson's thought process. I, I think all of those inevitably, they don't tell you the underside of like what they seek to avoid because they don't want to comment negatively on people and personality types they steer clear of. Um, but it's a it's a fascinating subject. If he had a chapter in that book that was like my view of the 2021 Washington Huskies, it would sell a lot more copies. <laughs> I think a lot of people would really like to know. Yes, they would. It's totally true. Yeah. Don't we think... don't have that anymore. Like it used to be people used to express opinions about those things. I don't think he's ever going to go there. No, he wouldn't. I, there's there's no coach there's no coaches that really will. Like Spurrier came close, right? Spurrier but Spurrier was kind of a smart ass about it. Like he wasn't an actual like sort of in-depth critical like he would he was just the master of the one-line walk-off. But yeah, man. It's interesting, like for all of the for all of the opinions that I know those guys have about other people in the profession, they just don't share it very much. I love reading Steve Spurrier's take on modern day coaching because it's all just like, you know, these guys don't play golf at all anymore. That's totally true. <laughs> so I heard from I think this was from they're all out recruiting back in my day. We'd be on the golf course by now. 
Spurrier said to Neuheisel, came in, like, and he was talking about, like, what their schedule was, what it was like. And Spurrier just looks at me and goes, let me ask you something. What do you guys do in all these meetings? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like he's kind of got a point. These hundred hour weeks, like you're you're telling me you couldn't work 90 hours. You need the hundred. There certainly is a misery Olympics that coaches participate in. Where, where it's like they get there because they don't want ever to think that people outwork them. Where they, it's stupid. It's just dumb that th- that they do that. I only plan to work like eighty nine hours this week, <laughs> so we got to wrap it up here because I don't want to. <laughs> you know, I don't want to fall. I don't want to fall victim to the uh, the misery Olympics myself. Yeah, yeah. No, nobody, nobody wants to. Nobody wants to fall or or to to be. Subject themselves to pain. We'll talk to you next week.